you have to stop thinking that cost dictates price. And you have to realize that price dictates cost. So what dictates price? Value. Welcome to Smashing the Plateau. We help consultants, coaches, entrepreneurs, and small business owners build their businesses after long careers as employees. We believe you should be able to do more of what you love and get paid what you're worth consistently. I'm your host, David Schreiner-Kahn. Today on Smashing the Plateau, I'm speaking with the ditching hourly guy, Jonathan Stark. In today's episode, you will learn how you can make more money without working more hours. Stay with us to hear all the details. How do you feel about where your business is today? Most of us do our best work in collaborative, supportive environments. Come explore ours. The Smashing the Plateau community can help you build your business through engaging discussions, live events, a private communication platform, accountability partners, and lots more. Learn more at smashingtheplateau.com. Now let's welcome Jonathan Stark. Jonathan is a former software developer who's on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing. He is the author of Hourly Billing is Nuts, the host of Ditching Hourly, and writes a daily newsletter on pricing for independent professionals. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about how you became focused on ending the hourly billing model. Uh, Well, it's a very specific story. I was working at a software development firm. It was like a, a boutique firm. We did FileMaker development, and I was the VP, which meant that my whole life was hours. I would do estimates for new clients where I'd try to estimate the hours. I would argue with existing clients about timesheets. I would chase the developers for hours every Friday so that we could get invoices out on Monday. It was hours, 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 hours. And But that was just normal. I didn't really think about it. I figured that was just the way that you did that kind of a business. And then at some point I realized you know, because I was, you know, I was, I was doing one-on-ones with people. I was privy to everyone's salary. And I realized one day that our best developer was probably losing us money. And our most junior developer was doing great. He was printing money. And I was like, wait a second, you know, if, if we were going to let someone go, we'd let go of our best guy. That doesn't make any sense. And I, I just tried to do all these mental gymnastics to be like, well, you know, the, the top developer, he trains other developers and he's a great resource, but then there will just be faster and make us less money. And, and, and then we have this junior fellow who was basically almost like a glorified intern who had an excellent bedside manner with clients. He kept their expectations set appropriately and it would take him forever to get things done. And we were just making way more money from him and kind of like, went off into the woods for a week figuratively to undo this Rubik's cube. There's like some kind of puzzle is this can't be right. And it, it took me a long time to even identify that the problem was that we were trading time for money. And once I flipped that and I imagined other ways to do it, all of a sudden our best developer also became our most profitable developer. So it, I was like, Oh, this, this fixes that. And it fixes also a bunch of other things. So I, I could not unsee that. I couldn't continue with the hours thing. So I went solo to kind of prove the model because I didn't know what I was going to do instead. I had no idea what I was going to do instead, really. 
but I, I went off on my own to figure it out so that I could do it in a sort of scenario where I was only risking my own income and not the income of 10 or 20 other people. So I, I didn't really want to try and turn the ship around in the context of the firm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, that was 2000, 2005. I had the realization 2006, I went solo. Yeah. It's interesting that you decided to do it on your own first, because in many scenarios, somebody who is a longtime professional inside organizations, their, their go-to is to try to make changes in the organization. And only when they get really frustrated because of politics or resistance to change um, or other, other reasons, then, then they'll go out on their own because they think there's a better way to do something. In fairness, I did bring the idea to my boss, who I'm still friends with. I actually saw him on Friday. And he was like, I understand what you're saying in theory. I get it, actually. It's, it makes sense. But how would we do it? And I had no answer for that question. I, I just had none. It was the hourly was such a base premise. It's a fundamental proposition that it, w- it was sort of infected uh, throughout the entire organization. You know, every system, every all of our compensation, our bonusing, everything presumed was based on this presumption of a billable hour. Yeah, so it's a pretty fundamental change. It was yeah, it would have been huge. I would have surely screwed it up. <laughs> it would not have. It would not have been smooth. <laughs> How long did it take you, Jonathan, until you were able to see it work in your own one-person business? First year, doubled my income. But that was because I was starting clean. So, And it was, uh, in fairness, I originally discovered something called value-based fees, uh, specifically a book by Alan Weiss called Value-Based Fees. And that became my Bible for the, the whole first couple of, maybe three years. And even though the first year I did much better than I would have hourly and my quality of life was amazing because I I was no longer on the clock, you know? So if something took me longer, I didn't have to have a fight about it later. I could just say, well, it took me twice as long as I thought, but it's done. The client would be like, great. You know, there's no fight. And when I finished things twice as fast as I thought I would, there's also no fight there. And I didn't lose any money. It's just like, okay, that's done. They're like, great. (laughs) So, so quality of life shot through the roof immediately. And the revenue was much better. It's not exactly apples to apples though, because, you know, salary versus revenue and, and all of the other things. So it's, but I did very well the first year I did fine. And after that, I found that it took me probably 18 months to really really flip my mindset. Like I kept on thinking that, oh, now I get it, you know, six months in, I'd be like, now I know how to write a a value-based proposal. And then looking back six months later, I'd be like, I I was still thinking about scope. And then six months after that, it's like, oh, I'm still thinking about scope a little bit. It probably took me about 18 months to really flip my thinking 180 degrees from what everybody does, which is scope first, and then make an estimate of hours to scope last, where first I would define roughly speaking, the value of the engagement to the client. And then I would set a price based on the value. And then I would come up with a scope based on the price that I could justify. It's a big difference. Yeah, fundamental. It takes people a year or two to really, so if they're used to the old way, the scope first way, it takes a, it can take a long time to really start to scope last. So you proved it in your own business. And then at what point, Jonathan, did you start teaching other people how to use this model? Yeah, it was in 
I think it was two, it was 2009. So in, in 2006, I started my solo business. So I had left a firm that was very well known. And I was very well known as part of the firm because I was writing for the trade publication, which was a physical magazine at the time. And I, I was speaking regularly at the annual conference. So I was well known and I was at this firm that was perhaps one of the, you know, surely in the top three at the time. And so people, you know, I had a lot of friends and connections and they're like, what are you crazy? Like leaving, leaving like one of the best, you know, you've, you got like the second banana spot at one of the best firms in the space. Like, what are you doing? And so I said, I I just can't bill hourly anymore. So I'm going to go solo and try and figure it out. And I think they were all sort of, you know, sitting on the sidelines with popcorn, waiting for it to fail. And when it didn't, then people were, you know, people colleagues were just email me and be like, Hey, how's it going? I'd be like, great. It's never been better. And they're like, how do you, how do you do that? Because no one likes billing by the hour. So, so I started to get kind of back channeled or individual one-on-one questions about it. And I would, I would try and answer. And then, you know, and I even, I don't remember the timeline, but I even took on a couple of private students. I was like, well, you know, I, I can't answer all of these questions all the time, but if we wanted, if we wanted to spin up something more formal, like some kind of mentoring arrangement, we could do that. And I did a couple of paid engagements like that. And around the same time, the local user group, the local FileMaker user group in Boston, they called me up and said, Hey, could you give a presentation? And uh, on this idea of ditching hourly and about 40 people showed up and, and we went blasted through the allotted time, lots of really good questions after the talk was over. Eventually we had to give up the room for the next group. So as we're kind of getting shuffled out of the room, I, I committed to the, to them that, well, I'll, I'll blog about this for the next few weeks, every Monday, if you want to send me questions and I'll just sort of try and document my process, at least the way I do it. I didn't really know how to teach it yet, but I, I knew I knew how to do it for myself. And that turned into months of weekly blogging. And that was 2009, I think. And then in 2016, those blog posts from way back then became the basis of my first self-published book, which was called Hourly Billing is Nuts. Yeah, it's interesting how how your own business has evolved from doing it yourself, starting to work with others on how to do it, and then ultimately teaching others how to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the progression. So fast forward to today, who do you primarily serve in teaching this model? Yeah, at first it started out being independent software developers and it's it's broadened into similar types of careers that all work, you know, digitally that traditionally bill by the hour. So designers and developers and architects and lawyers and accountants and really any professional that is self-employed and generally would, would normally bill by the hour. I just kind of call that independent professionals. And so I help them switch to pricing their work instead of billing for their time, which as we already described is a 180 degree mindset shift. So it does take accountability. It takes support. It takes, sometimes it can include some sort of tactical assistance. They just can't come up with the right words to articulate something in a sticky client situation because their mindset hasn't flipped yet. It hasn't completely flipped yet. Once it does, you see everything differently and the answers become obvious, but it takes some accountability and support along the way for most people to get there. Yeah. Can you talk a little more about what is needed for a mindset shift? Because it's not just, I suspect it's not just seeing the formula. There's more to it than that. No, not at all. Right. 
you have to stop thinking that cost dictates price. And you have to realize that price dictates cost. So what dictates price? Value. So if, if you imagine these three factors, cost, price, and value, cost is the least amount of money you would accept to do a thing for a client in this case, in this case of a service business cost to you is the least amount of money you would accept to do a gig. It's like your walkaway price value on the other end is the most the client would be willing to pay for your contribution to what their desired outcome might be. So that's, you know, that's their walkaway price. They'll, they'll say no at 10 cents over the walkaway price. Hopefully, and this is when value pricing really shines. Hopefully there is a huge gap between your walkaway price and their walkaway price. So your cost and their value. And if that's the case, you've got a real big area in between where you can set a price, even if it's, you know, a little bit skewed on your end or too skewed on their end, it's still an acceptable price to both people. It's mutually profitable. But most people I work with, they don't even understand what value they provide. They think of it as, you know, I put in the time, you owe me the money. You asked me to do this, I did it, now you owe me the money. But if you really want to scale your business up without adding headcount, and you flip that model, and you think, you know, if I could wave a magic wand and get this done for you over the weekend, would that be worth more to you? Or would you rather have me drag it out for six months? We're always going to say in a weekend, we want it done immediately so we can start getting the benefits. Nobody wants your time. They all want the outcome. They want the results. So if you start thinking about and asking when you meet with a prospect about what they're trying to achieve, what is their current state? What is their desired future state? Why do you think someone like me to, can contribute to this transformation? I do branding or I do SEO. Like you want to make more money or you want to decrease costs. Why do you think SEO will help with that? Why do you think branding will help with that? And you have the client describe to you the transformation they want and what they think your contribution to that would be. And then you've got everything you need to do a back of the envelope calculation on what it might be worth to them. Your contribution might be worth to them in that context. And then you can set budgets for yourself. Like, oh, well, if this is worth $100,000 to them minimum a year, then you know, what could I do for 10000 to help them move that needle? Or what could I do for 22000 to help them move that needle? What can I do for 50000 to help them move that needle? And if you present them with those three options, they will, and, and you've done your estimate right, you know, you, you've guesstimated that the value, you're in the ballpark at least, then there's a very short list of reasons why they wouldn't say yes to one of the options. So Jonathan, as hard as this may be for an independent professional to grasp when they've been focused on hourly billing for a period of time or perhaps a long time, it's smashing the plateau. We serve corporate refugees who have been in the employee mindset for often somewhere between 20 and 40 years before they go out on their own and start their own business. For folks that have had a, a long run of employment before starting their own business, what's your experience with the mindset shift they need to go through? in order to be able to build the business that's based on providing value first. Yeah, my hot take reaction to that is that it's a similar kind of scope or size of a mental shift, but it's a different one. There's still this notion of like, 
there's still the possibility when you're a salaried employee, there's still a possibility that you have no clue what value you're actually adding. Like you feel like you are contributing and you feel like you should be paid fairly for your, what you're worth, whatever that means. But without knowing really what benefits, what beneficial business outcomes you have contributed to. I mean, I, I had one corporate job for about three years at uh, Fortune 50 and I could only guess, I'd never thought to do it, but even if I had thought to do it, I could have barely only guessed at some kind of business benefit from the work that I was performing there. I was doing, you know, I was building software, internal software. But at the same time, I had a really high degree of confidence that I was contributing something, like I was doing amazing work. But if someone had asked me to quantify that, I would have, it would have been impossible. So if you're not used to, if you're an employee who's not used to quantifying the outcome or asking their, their manager or someone even farther up than their manager, how is, how is my, this thing that I released that is now everyone's using, like, how has that made your life better? You know, I never asked anybody that. And that's the kind of question you need to start asking. I can imagine that certain professionals, even as employees, maybe in sales, especially I would guess in sales, maybe in operations, would be really good at this because they're already managing budgets and they've got, you know, the, they are incentivized by moving KPIs that are directly associated with dollars. So certain folks, depending on their position and their level in the organization might be really good at this. I, I don't, that was not the kind of person that I was exposed to when I was there, but it could exist. And what do you think it takes for somebody to be able to make the shift to go out on their own and start their business using a model where they're focused on delivering value first. Yeah. Think more like a business owner or an entrepreneur instead of a technician. So obviously I come from a pretty technical background and a lot of the folks I work with have a real engineering mindset and they're the almost to a person. They're a perfect example of what Michael Gerber described in the e-myth as a technician. They don't see any value in the other two personality roles, entrepreneur and manager. And they think they, they take responsibility for all the success that the business has. And I, I say that having been one, I completely thought that marketing and sales were silly. Managers were there to waste my time. And, you know, and I, I also saw this when I was managing employees, they're like, well, you're billing me out at 150, but my effective hourly rate for my salary is only 75. So how come I don't get, more? you know, they just feel very, very much like they're being underpaid or taken advantage of as if the work magically showing up on their desk isn't, isn't the, the, you know, thanks to what the other people are doing. So when you first go solo, if you're very technical anyway, if you had a real technical position as an employee, I would urge people to very quickly, as soon as possible, recognize that you're not just the technician anymore. Now you're an entrepreneur or a business owner. And that technical thing is that's what you do when it comes to client delivery. So you've got, you need to do your thing that you used to do as an employer, but now you're doing it for a client instead of for your boss. There are still th at least three other categories of things that go into building a business, the craft of building a business that you need to get good at fast. And if the faster you do get good at that and start to think of your consulting or whatever you're doing as a business, the sooner you do that, the more you'll be able, more quickly you'll be able to relate to your customers who I'm presuming are B2B. So if, if you are selling to business owner types, 
and you can think more like a business owner, then you're just going to have a lot easier time talking about outcomes instead of inputs. Jonathan, as you're going through this transition from employee and particularly employee mindset to entrepreneur mindset, what have you found are some of the ways you can tap into the power of others, such as in a community setting, that can be a game changer? I mean, there was a huge game changer for me in 2015 when I was invited to join a small kind of mastermind of about 10 people. And that it it was all, we all had different areas of expertise and we were all at different stages, but we, but it was all, we all worked online. We were all soloists with one or two exceptions where it was just two people together. And we we're able to talk about business stuff, especially money that you are basically not allowed to talk about anywhere else. You just, it's just not done. It's either, you know, if, if it's either embarrassing because you think the money that you're making is too low or the money situations you're in are not, not optimal, or it feels like bragging because you're doing really well. So like, how do you, how do you gain a, a, a common sense around money in a business without talking to other business people. And it was, I mean, it was huge for me, like finally having that, first of all, the ability to, I was the only value pricer in there. I think, I think at the time I was the only one. And I certainly had a different business model than anybody else in there. So it was, it was cool because it gave me an opportunity to, to have practice teaching it to other people who, who pretty much got it. Like we were very like-minded and so they would get it right away. So it's kind of like playing on easy mode, learning how to teach it or getting better at teaching it. And then, you know, the group just crafting business models, playing around with business models, coming up with new pricing, coming up with new ways to package our expertise. It was a real sort of, it was almost like an innovation lab or an incubator, not incubator is the wrong word. No, a little bit like that. It was like an incubator with no one in charge. And it was a complete game changer to be able to, to have a place where we could freely talk about wins and failures and money and business model and for, for folks like us. Yeah, that was huge. And what was it about this mastermind that made people comfortable talking about money where, you know, you, you've described how it's a taboo subject in so many places. I don't remember, but it must've been that the organizer just set that expectation. I'm assuming that was the case, or if it wasn't that, then someone just did it. And then everyone was like, oh, that's okay. We can do that. But I'm pretty sure the the organizer probably set that expectation. I would certainly recommend that if you were starting such a thing. Jonathan, what's your definition of community? Oh, I don't have one. That's a great question. What is my definition of community? Mm -hmm. I guess it's, it's sort of, uh, I I guess I'm going to default to the kind of Seth Godin definition, which is people like us do things like this. So it's, it's probably, I guess I would say sort of a, a group of people who have come together to have a free and open discussion around a particular subject. So I, I guess I would call that, I think that's a pretty good definition of community. Yeah, I like that. Jonathan, we've covered a lot of territory in a relatively short amount of time. And I mentioned in the, in the introduction, your book and your podcast and your daily newsletter. If someone wants to go deeper with anything we've discussed, learn more about you and about the ideas that you share, where would be the best place for them to go? Yeah, if you're interested in more 
information about value pricing in particular, I would go to valuepricingbootcamp.com and that will redirect you to a page on my website where you can sign up for a six day email course where I go into the topic from a couple of, you know, you know, five, six different angles and it's free and it comes from my personal email. So you can reply to any message to ask me a question. It's a good way to get in touch. Sounds great. Well, Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Smashing the Plateau and share your insights and experiences. My guest today has been Jonathan Stark, former software developer who is on a mission to aid the world of hourly billing. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. When you visit the Smashing the Plateau website at smashingtheplateau.com, You'll find a summary of each episode along with the links we mention on the show. On today's episode with Jonathan Stark, we learned how you can make more money without working more hours. How do you feel about where your business is today? Most of us do our best work in collaborative, supportive environments. Come explore ours. The Smashing the Plateau community can help you build your business through engaging discussions, live events, a private communication platform, accountability partners, and lots more. Learn more at smashingtheplateau.com. I'm David Schreiner-Kahn. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show. I'll see you on our next episode.